Well, over the last couple of Sundays, uh, we have talked about church leadership. This is the third in a series that is designed to help you understand uh, some of the revisions that we are making, uh, proposing in, to our Constitution. And the goal has been to say, hey, this is what we see in Scripture and why we are proposing those revisions. Again, a reminder not to uh, say in any way, shape, or form that uh, we've had everything all completely wrong up, and, up until now, uh, but uh, these revisions, we uh, wanted to just show you where they're coming from in Scripture and some of the things that uh, we are seeking to strengthen and sharpen according to what uh, we see. So a third part, if you're kind of wondering what this graphic has been the whole time, uh, it's not some abstract art to get you thinking way off <laughs> in the middle of this so we can slide things past you. Uh, it has to do with the idea of multiplying. We went with something with cells, and we're going to get into the idea of multiplying our faith uh, in others' lives and as God works in uh, each one of us through the power of his Holy Spirit today. Uh, so uh, just a little bit of review uh, for you. The last couple of weeks we've seen that elders, deacons, and, and deaconesses provide leadership according to their calling and gifts. All right, we focused our last couple of Sundays on those concepts, and uh, I want to encourage you that leadership in a local church is important. Not to say that uh, we have absolutely everything right about church leadership, that there's never a problem or a controversy or anything like that, uh, we are not in, in any way in that sense uh, exempt or guaranteed that those things won't happen. But I do want to encourage you that uh, church leadership matters. For those of you that read the uh, Beacon Journal, perhaps you saw an extreme example yesterday in the paper. A uh, former uh, cult leader had ties to the Akron area, Wilbert Thomas, passed away. I wouldn't suggest uh, reading the entire article if uh, some difficult things about people sinning against the flock trigger you, uh, it was very, very difficult to understand that someone in the name of God would do the things the guy did. A little bit of a different plane. Uh, perhaps some of you are into podcasts or you're curious about the church. Christianity Today has a podcast uh, going right now about the rise and fall of a church known as Mars Hill. It used to be out in the Seattle area. Their pastor was Mark Driscoll, a very well-known guy for a, a, a kind of a big season of the early 2000s and into uh, the 2010s or whatever you call those decades. Uh, and it just kind of goes into how the whole uh, mega church uh, rose and uh, in, in their case, how it all came apart and dissolved. And, and I'm not trying to point out the warts today of the church and to point at other people and say, hey, look at all their dysfunction, like we're somehow exempt of that. Again, the point is that, that it matters. And, and today... Uh, isn't necessarily uh, just about church leadership, but just a couple of reminders about what, <laughs> to, to what end we serve. I used this slide last Sunday, and on the left, uh, what you see is what we learn about in our government classes. We learn about in our civics. And I don't, I don't use this left side today to say that this is how uh, our church has gotten uh, leadership wrong. I, I say this as a warning because when you have a representative government in our, in our civics, in the way that our country is run, 
uh, it's easy to kind of translate those things. And what you see here is church government is really different than people interacting with representatives who are elected to uh, take your interest or maybe not take your interest or whatever your opinion on all that is, and then to make laws and pri uh, priorities and, and taxes and all that kind of stuff that affect how we live day to day. Our authority, ultimately, as believers and in church leadership, doesn't come from the people that quote-unquote, we elect or we recognize as our leaders. It comes from God. It comes from Jesus, who's the head of the church. It comes from the Word of God, which we know as the Bible. Uh, that's where we get our law and structure for day-to-day -day living. And so as leaders are called and affirmed by the local church, we see what God is doing in specific people. Then we talk and we work together on how it is we're going to flesh that out and sum up our, our amount of energy and resource as a local church. We want to commit to obey God together. And so the, the phrase that always helps me when I think about church leadership, it is not about electing people to represent us before God. It is about affirming people who will represent God to the people. All right, so that's a, a big switch, a kind of a big chasm, uh, make a note there, uh, but church leadership in that sense is different. And so the question today, just a little bit of intro, a little bit of background, question today is what should the church actually accomplish? Well, if you listen as I read the three verses at the end of Matthew 28, it becomes pretty obvious the church seeks to accomplish the commission given to us directly by our Lord. I'm glad. We don't have to sit around twiddling our thumbs in an elders meeting or as deacons are serving. We don't have to try to figure out, well, what are we trying to do around here? Jesus made it very clear for us. We have a commission that comes directly from our Lord. I'm going to reread verses 19 and 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. The command, go therefore and make disciples. This is what Jesus directly told his disciples and us, by extension, also his disciples. The command is the same for us. And so if you're following Jesus or wondering about following Jesus, one of the main things we strive to do in our obedience to Jesus is to make disciples. Now, you might wonder, how do we go about that? How uh, do deacons and deaconesses and how do elders, how do we all go uh, in that same direction and, and how do we work? Well, there's a couple things in here that, that modify the command to make disciples. If you look at 19, one of the modifiers, go therefore make disciples, after that, what does it say? Baptizing them. All right, so we can, we can baptize it's a sign of new life when a believer who wasn't a believer becomes a believer by the power of God and finds forgiveness for their sins and commits their life to Jesus and repents and turns away from everything. They make Jesus the Lord of their life. We celebrate that. It's the only way you get to heaven. The only way to have peace on this life is to repent of our sin 
and trust fully in what Jesus did for us. And so baptizing people is a sign of that. And then the second modifier is in the beginning of 20, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. All right, we're going to talk a little bit about those things in just a minute. But first, I want to show you old, I should say current, until we've approved a new one, uh, and proposed. All right, so on the left, you see the language that is currently in our Constitution. I'll read it. It says, we believe the Great Commission is the charter of the church is given by Christ. All duty and privilege belonging to the church are explicitly and implicitly included in it. This task laid upon the church is Christ's answer to the need of mankind. The Great Commission is Christ's way of giving himself to the world as he has given himself for the world. The Great Commission imposes upon the church one single supreme function to know Christ and make him known through a program of missions and evangelism. We did not decide to shorten that on the right because we have a problem with it. That statement is not lacking. Where we sharpen it on the right, just a little bit more focus to it, is to say we believe the Great Commission is the responsibility of the worldwide church. We believe the commission given by Jesus demands the obedience of every true believer. We desire to train believers who will labor to this end including evangelism and disciple-making, both locally and globally. Okay, so that's the, the sharpener as we talk about our desire to be a church that is obedient to Christ. I'm going to give you a chance to see that again before we're done today. We have a commission directly from our Lord. Now, you might be thinking, how... If this demands the obedience of every true believer, how can I live that out? How can we think about it together in our lives? How can we think about strategy? How can we serve Jesus and do our very best to try to make disciples? I have some verses up here from Mark chapter 4. Here's a picture of the way we see God working and some principles of discipleship. He said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. All right, there are some things that are happening in this illustration about the kingdom of God. Some things that are very helpful for us as New Testament believers to, to think through what patterns do we see in the way we live our lives from this parable. Here is a graphic that helps us think through this just a little bit. Any place we go, if somebody doesn't know Christ, there is a, a desire that we have to enter into that field. All right? You might argue that it's an empty field and no seed has been scattered there. Opposition is there, but no gospel seed has been, has been scattered. And so somebody's going to come into that field and begin to scatter, scatter seed, which you see in the second box on the upper right, which is the spreading of the gospel, what we might call evangelism. We want people to know the truth of Jesus. We want to try to figure out uh, where people's understanding of him is and introduce them to the truth of how you can honor Christ and be in right relationship with him and serving him. 
Then uh, below that, we see some of the seeds start to sprout and start to grow. That's discipleship. We see people start to take off, and it gets really exciting because people's lives start to change, and they start to take the word of God and apply it to their lives. And then they, they do things differently because they're being obedient to what God's word says. And when we all start to experience that, it gets exciting because we're growing and we're being discipled. Well, then we see uh, that, that some of the uh, gap, what it begins to grow is gathered. Uh, we understand that to be church, uh, believers gathering in different places all over the world. Uh, today and throughout each week, believers who are being discipled gather together. Now, you wonder about the, the big circle in the middle that says leaders. Uh, in the middle of all of this, while this is going on, leaders are naturally developed. It's a part of the process. Take some strategy, take some intentionality, but leaders uh, emerge and are a part of the process and their development happens uh, from entry all the way around to gathering and so the cycle repeats itself. Now, if you don't feel like an expert on that, that's okay. I just wanted to dip the, the toes in the pool, if you will, and help you understand one way to think about strategy of discipleship. And then so for us as believers, what tools do we have to, to go into a new field, to share the gospel there, to, to make a disciple, to be obedient to what we're talking about today in Matthew 28? And then as, as people gather, what does, that, what does that look like? Well, we want to learn that locally and globally. We believe that it demands the obedience of every true believer, and we want to see people join into that. All right, a couple things before I move on. People in... The second field who are spreading the gospel in the third field who are trying to make disciples, those people who are passionate about those things and reaching unbelievers specifically are not just, quote-unquote, those kinds of Christians. They're Christians. Right? We want to normalize this as part of the Christian experience, not as something set aside for specific people to do. A little bit more on that in a minute. Second, I don't have any desire to pit believers who are passionate about sharing the gospel and making disciples among people who don't know Jesus. I don't have any desire to pit people against those who are passionate about teaching and shepherding because teaching and shepherding is still a part of the third box. It's a part of discipleship. It's a part of the life in the local church is that we're going to do life together and we're going to proceed as we're growing together. All right. So hopefully you have some, some questions uh, about this. Uh, Jesus says, go make disciples, baptizing and teaching. I'll shorten it for our purposes. Maybe some questions are starting to stir in your mind. If you're hearing today that, hey, this is every true believer should be engaged in making disciples. Well, who, well, who should teach? When should they start teaching? What should we do? How should we, who should baptize? How should we do that? When should that happen? When are people mature enough? Okay. These disciples that Jesus tells this command to are given these instructions at the end of their, their crash course, a three-year study with Jesus, where we see ups and downs and successes and failures and God being glorified and Jesus being disappointed and reconciliation but all of it, Jesus is with them in truth. What I want to share with you and what I want to challenge you with today is when it comes to who, we talk about this commission that Jesus gives, and when it comes to two, excuse me, comes to who, 
the best way I can phrase this is the story of the ordinary. Part of the problem with large personality-driven churches is people then become, in some senses, tethered to what that charismatic leader and that personality is driving at and, and what they're telling them to do. It can be one of the weaknesses. I want us to contrast that with not only what we see right here in Matthew 28, I want us to contrast that with how we see the disciples begin to obey this command. See, much of Christianity in the United States and Europe over the past 500 years has given the responsibility of disciple-making to people who are paid to lead churches. That and maybe a handful of really gifted teachers, people willing to serve and teach. Now, I want to be clear. Don't put any words in my mouth and don't start any rumors. I am not opposed to paid pastors. <laughs> Do you feel the irony of that statement? I'm not. I'm not opposed to the principle of paid pastors or gifted teachers. We must learn and know the word of God to be strong in the Lord and in the... Come on, kids. I heard that back there in the strength of his might. Mm. Those of you leaders who are too afraid to say it out loud, out loud next time is just all right with me. We want to be, okay? And so we're not, I'm not opposed to that. But I don't want to put limits on discipleship. We talked a lot last year about some of these statistics about people who get active and engaged in, in following Christ and evangelizing and making disciples. And one of the numbers that I put up is that about 90% of Christians don't share their faith. Friends, I think this is part of the reason why, is that we pay somebody to do that. And it can become the mindset. That's not the goal. Because I'm not really that good. <laughs> All right? It's not the goal to pay somebody to, to outsource our disciple-making for us. I think it's part of the reason why so few feel confident to make a disciple. Large group of believers expecting somebody else to do it because it's not their job or I'm not that kind of a Christian. Okay, now, the story, though, of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the book of Acts is not about schools, seminaries, uh, paid staff people, church staff, church buildings, church growth seminars, or self-absorbed, borderline narcissistic, power-mongering church leaders. It's not about those things. The Gospels and the book of Acts are not about those things. Not opposed to those things, but what I want to do today is to get our faces into Scripture. All through Jesus' ministry, what do we see? Ordinary people. All through the book of Acts, as the church begins to spread, what do we see? Ordinary people is what we see. We must be convinced the goal is not control. Our goal as leaders is to help our church organization function so people are being encouraged and built up 
and taught and strengthened and trained to be obedient to Jesus' command. That's it. The goal isn't for us to sit on some throne as your church leaders and say, well, don't hurt your neck looking up at us. It's not that. The goal is to avoid that kind of control. It doesn't mean we don't have to make hard decisions and say, Here's, here are the boundaries of the field, but we want people to be excited to play the game. A couple examples. Luke 8, 1 through 3. Soon afterward, he went on through cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. And Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager. And Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. First of all, you have twelve disciples. And what you know of the disciples, these are ordinary people called out of their lives, day-to-day -day lives, called out of their jobs to follow Jesus and to, to learn how to do that and to be his disciples. And we see many women who supported him, sometimes out of their own means. And it's right here on the page for us to, for us to digest. This is Jesus' band of followers. This is how he established his ministry and taught about the kingdom and represented God to the world. It was his strategy. So let's look at what happened. All right, I'm going to skip ahead to Acts chapter 17. This is. And our goal isn't to, to fully comprehend these entire eight verses and everything that's going on. It'd be a whole sermon by itself. But here's what I want you to get. All right, look, I'm going to read through this, and we're going to say just a couple of things I'll point out. The story is ordinary. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, Apollonia, you know, Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, I can get that one, where there was a synagogue of the Jews, and Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, it's about three weeks, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. So Paul, who's very knowledgeable about the scriptures, but originally hated Christians, radically changed, radically saved, what is he doing? Entry. He's going into a place where there aren't believers. And what is he doing? He's spreading the gospel seed. Here's Jesus who died and rose again, and I'm here to proclaim to you that this guy is the Christ. He's the authority. He's the, the one that was supposed to come. The Messiah of the Jewish people. And so Paul goes in the synagogue, and this is what he says. Now, some of them were persuaded and, and joined Paul and Silas. We got some seed that begins to sprout. Praise the Lord. We want that to happen when we spread the gospel. As did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out of the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men have turned the world upside down, have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they are all acting 
against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. So here comes opposition. This is something that happens in the fields. There's opposition. Another parable, Jesus says Satan comes and tries to take the word away. It's exactly what he's doing. He's trying to take the word away. Who's Jason? Well, when they got run out of the synagogue, they had to go to somebody's house. We don't know much about Jason. He's just a guy who opened up his house to people who were running from the mean Jewish people who were trying to hurt him. That's all he is. And so they get on his case. The people, the city, the authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. Where was that? Anybody remember? Thessalonica. The beginning of a church. A faithful church. That Paul writes to in the New Testament. Jason's name we find on Paul's team in Romans 16. That in just a few weeks of preaching the gospel and sharing with them, God began to work in ordinary people. If you feel ordinary, then good. You're right at home in the New Testament. If you feel underqualified to tell people about Jesus and to make a disciple and show somebody the Bible, then good. You're right at home in the New Testament. I'm not making this up. This isn't a rah-rah speech. This is the New Testament. And I hope that instead of overwhelming you and making you afraid, I hope it excites you. Because it excites me to see this happen. Uh, I'm interested in what I heard recently called duck discipleship. Duck discipleship. I was running, um, I think it was last weekend, down on the towpath. And you never know what's going to happen on a towpath. You're going to get attacked by one of the geese that's down there or something, and they're going to come at you, and we're going to have an issue. Uh, that's always fun. But on this particular day, I was, um, I was running, and this duck comes across the towpath, and all these little ducks, or ducklings, I guess, they come, they come after this duck, and they're kind of waddling. And it made me remember duck discipleship. A guy on my trip to the Middle East remind me about duck discipleship. And he said, here's, here's it, right? If Jesus is the head duck and we're all trying to follow him, then really what happens is people whose lives are changed by Jesus, they start to follow him. And then they teach the next person in line. <laughs> and that person just kind of follows what they're learning, what they're doing, how they're growing. And then somebody in their life is going to hear from them and see how their life has changed, and they're going to maybe teach a handful of stories, and they're going to be able to share the gospel with them, and they're going to be able to share the good news. And so that duck then behind them is going to start to follow this duck who's following this duck, and we're all following Jesus. It's kind of what we see when the disciples start to spread. We see following another, following another, following another, following another. The design of this is that it begins to multiply. And so church leadership doesn't exist to control how all that happens, to paint one narrative, this is the only way to do life, and, and alienate anybody who doesn't agree with that. We exist to help you feel the joy of making disciples, even if it is incredibly challenging. I'm not trying to make this sound simple, I'm not living in a naive world. 
it's, it's not easy. It's difficult. The principles are simple to grasp. The work can become very challenging, as we just saw in Acts 17. What if, as we close today, just some ideas, some scattered thoughts. What if we made a commitment to pray for those in our city, in our county, in our state, in our nation, in our world that are far from God? What if people knew Goss Memorial Church was a place where those people prayed for people who are far from God? And they're serious. They want people who are not disciples to be disciples. They really want to see people come to Jesus and get established and grow and then learn how to share their faith with others. What if that is just a part of what we do? What if we committed to share the gospel and ready with somebody maybe who, who, is, uh, who is newer? What if Sunday mornings became adventurous and we never know who we're going to meet and we never know what contact we're going to get to make and we never know when we might be able to share the gospel with somebody? What if Caleb, our youth pastor, what if he knew during youth meetings or what if our Wednesday leaders during children's programming during the school year, what if they knew that a team was giving specific energy in prayer for God to work in the lives of those to attend, who attend to see them come to Christ and to see them begin to grow as disciples and become trained to continue sharing themselves? What if every single one of us actually believed and were confident to share the gospel with somebody and to help them begin to follow Jesus? What if every single one of us had those skills and said, yeah, I'm confident to do that. I'm ready. No church will ever do all of these things perfectly. None will. We believe the Great Commission is the responsibility of the worldwide church. We're a part of that. We believe the commission given by Jesus demands the obedience of every true believer. We desire to train believers who will labor to this end, including evangelism and disciple-making, both locally and globally. This is what elders and deacons and deaconesses, as we try to serve together, lead together, manage this local church for God's memorial, we want to be in obedience to Jesus. We want to be in obedience to the Great Commission. And rather than control, we want to build a congregation up and set them free to minister the gospel and make disciples in their day-to-day -day lives. We want to be in obedience to Jesus, not by our own strength, but through his, by the power of the Holy Spirit working within us, that we would obey this. Let's read this together as we close. Go, therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age.